Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, it might not seem like it just now, but the past 35 years or so have been remarkably peaceful when it comes to large-scale military conflict. Of course, this all changed in late February. Vladimir Putin has just addressed the Russian people moments ago, announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation, in his words, to demilitarize Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has spurred many countries to re-examine their own defenses, both political... Secretary General Finland is looking to accelerate their move to NATO membership. Yes, that, that is a direct result of uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, Finland has a very long border. And military. Now, the defense minister said this week that Canada, that, that when it comes time for Canada's next budget, which is in just a few months' time, we expect, she is going to be putting forward some very aggressive, in her words, aggressive options in terms of dis- defence spending. This and while New Zealand might be about as far from the conflict as you can get, the conversation is springing up here too. Would National you know, increase its defence spending to make those commitments to its allies? I think that's a really um, good conversation that needs to be taking place. The thing is, defence spending is always a bit of a testy issue. We already spend lots of money every year on our military, but we also have high rates of child poverty and crumbling infrastructure and a health system that could really use a few extra bucks. How, the argument goes, can we justify pumping more money into buying more planes that might never fire a shot in anger with everything else we have to deal with? So today on the podcast, what does New Zealand's military actually do? How much do we spend on it? How has that changed over time? And what do we and our neighbours in the Pacific get for that? Professor David Capey is the Director of Victoria University's Centre for Strategic Studies. We are here to talk about New Zealand military spending, and we will do that soon, but I I thought maybe we could begin by talking about Germany. The war is a catastrophe for Ukraine, but... Back in late February, Germany makes this this big announcement. This is in the aftermath of Russia invading Ukraine. What was that announcement? What did Germany announce? And why was that a big deal? Well, German defence spending has been quite low for a long time. And it's been a source of uh, considerable irritation in the transatlantic relationship within NATO, which has traditionally had a sort of a 2% target for defence spending. German defence spending has been much lower than that. But uh, the new government that came in um, in the last few months uh, with, the, with the invasion of Ukraine did a, a, just a remarkable turnaround almost overnight uh, announced that it would uh, significantly increase its defence spending uh, and uh, commit to 2% of GDP going forward. A boost of 100 billion euros, part of a new foreign policy set out by the government in response to the invasion of Ukraine. So it was, a, it was I think, quite a, quite a shock to, uh, to a lot of outside observers. In the broadest sense, has Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused some countries around the world to reassess their defence capacity or how much resourcing they're sort of putting into it? Has that been a bit of a tidal shift for countries around the world, do you think? I think clearly in, in Europe it's had a very dramatic and direct effect. The German example I just mentioned is, is one, um, but not the only one. I think a number of other countries 
in Eastern, Central, Western Europe are, are revisiting their defence spend. Um, I think also what it's also caused people to do is think a bit about their alliance relationships uh, and the kind of defence relationships they have. One of the things that's been fascinating to watch has been to watch two um, non-members of NATO, Finland and Sweden, uh, that have long been outside of the NATO uh, framework, even though there have been elements of, of interoperability. Uh, in Finland, for example, uh, even parties that have long been opposed to NATO membership are now uh, talking um, with some enthusiasm about that. And it looks like we could actually see a further enlarged NATO membership as a result of, of the invasion of Ukraine. So I think it's it's generally, I think, beyond beyond that, I think it's been a reminder of the sort of the salience of hard power in world politics. For small countries, I think it's been a reminder of sort of that the, there's still an element of... Um, you know, might makes right out there that, you know, there are malevolent bad actors that are seeking to use force to their own ends. So I think it's, 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 had a, it's had a pretty dramatic effect. And I think for New Zealand, it's also be, you know, I think it's part, it's sort of fed an impression together with some of the big shifts in our part of the world, a more assertive uh, China, for example, that a period in, in, in our history, which has actually been pretty, you know, enormously favourable to us, mm. Uh, in terms of a, a stable, uh, integrating world that where, by and large, people were pretty happy to sort of follow a, a, the status quo in our region and a sort of rules-based order is, is perhaps coming to an end. It's not surprising that I suppose that's, that's raised some anxieties. Uh, and uh, one dimension of that is a growing discussion around defence spending. New Zealand spends about 1.5% of our GDP on defence. In the 2021-22 financial year, that was about $5.2 billion. Interestingly, that number has been steadily increasing over the past few years. In fact, ever since the Labour-led coalition came in in 2017. But what do we actually get for that $5.2 billion? Is it just lots of guns and bombs and troops? Well, I think one of the things, whenever you start talking about defence budgets, you have to be very careful to be clear what you are actually talking about and what yeah. you're comparing. Sometimes there can be lots of comparing apples and oranges. I mean, I think one of the things in New Zealand, you know, we often focus on um, the ships and planes and, and what are sometimes called platforms or capabilities. But, but in some ways, for, for New Zealand, a place to start is to remember that we have a defence force of around about 15,000 people, if you include the civilians that support it uh, and, um, uh, and the reservists. So that's a, you know, that's a sizable number of people in a, in a small country working for, um, working for the government. And then beyond that, you obviously have three services, uh, Army, Navy and Air Force, and within those they have... Uh, needs for uh, operations, for training, for um, preparations, um, but also needs for for equipment and platforms. Um, and defence equipment obviously can be um, very expensive, um, but also can also take a long time to come into service. From the time you decide to purchase something, can take a long time. So, so a defence budget is a whole lot of things. It's salaries, but it's all, it can also be about those capital investments, looking out to the future in terms of thinking about what kinds of equipment are you going to need to face the the uh, security challenges that will emerge, not just next month or next year, but maybe over the next decades. In, in terms of our spending on defence, I think we're at about just over $5 billion a year, which is around 1.5% of GDP. Is that a lot? 
You know, I think is that a lot. It's, it's it's a relative question. I mean, you, you, some of the countries we we started talking about at the beginning of this podcast in Western Europe have uh, have spent less than that. For example, Germany and some others. Um, I think it puts us below the OECD average for defence spending, which I believe is somewhere around two and a half percent of GDP, below Australia. But actually, um, the New Zealand defence spend has actually increased in the last little while, partly through. Um, some major capability acquisitions that took place in the first uh, term of this government. Last year, the government announced $2.3 billion for new planes to replace the ageing Orion fleet, as well as a $100 million vessel for the Navy. But you wouldn't say it's a, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not a huge budget by any means. When you say capabilities and, um, and, and sort of assets and things like that, what, what do you mean by that? What, um, would you translate that to every man speak for me, if you would. Well, I guess um, if we think about big ticket equipment items that a military needs to carry out some of its tasks. So um, we can think about aircraft, we can think about ships, we can think about the kinds of vehicles and weapons that that the army might need. And um, some of those platforms, some of those bits of equipment will have a life that uh, is is decades. Mm. So if you think, for example, our frigates, the Anzac frigates that we have were originally commissioned in 1989, Mm. Uh, so they've been in service for more than 40 years. Now they've had um, some significant upgrades in that time. Uh, and uh, and those are sorts of things we mean by, by platforms and, and capabilities is really what those um, platforms allow you to do. If you look, for example, at the uh, offshore patrol vessels, so one of their roles is, for example, is to, to patrol New Zealand's exclusive economic zone and to prevent, detect illegal uh, and unregulated fisheries. But they can also carry out a range of other tasks in the Pacific, for example, responding to a humanitarian disaster, such as we saw in Tonga. New Zealand is preparing to send a Hercules with aid to Tonga today, provided it's safe. Or they can be deployed to Solomons, as they were in the last few months. Now 15 Defence Force troops are today heading to the Solomon Islands to help calm the growing unrest. A further 50, also including police officers, are due to depart at the weekend. To respond to a situation of of unrest there. So they can carry out a, a a number of different tasks. And I think one of the things that's challenging um, for the Defence Force is probably in the way the number of those other tasks has grown uh, in recent years, as well as um, they're still needing to have that core purpose of being a combat-capable Defence Force that can carry out some of those core defence and foreign policy goals. Yeah, and I mean, I, and I suppose you didn't even mention MIQ there, which um, which presumably would have been a, a big shift to the role of, of much of the military. But um, I think that that is actually quite an important point to get out there because it's a question that would occur to a lot of people is the question of, you know, what does the New Zealand military actually do most of the time? You know, we're not exactly out fighting in a bunch of large-scale wars all the time. So what keeps the armed forces busy? And uh, you seem to suggest there actually really quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a series of tasks. And I think one of the things we we probably need to start with is that New Zealand has a combat-capable defence force that trains and prepares... Um, to um, support the government's defence interests. So that can mean the defence of New Zealand, the territory, the exclusive economic zone, to support our ally, Australia, um, and partners internationally to contribute to a rules-based order in through the use 
of armed force and, and carrying out military effects. Sometimes we sort of delegate that as a sort of a last, after, you know, the last bottom item on the list, whereas that's, that's actually the reason in some ways that you have a defence force. But having a defence force and having uh, a whole suite of platforms and equipment and a large number of people who are organised and trained also allows you to carry out a number of other tasks uh, in peacetime. And that's, that's an extraordinarily long list. Could be fisheries patrol uh, in the Pacific in support of Pacific neighbours who are um, have huge economic zones like New Zealand and, and, and only modest capacity to actually um, police those. Going further down, you can think about uh, activities around New Zealand. So, for example, um, responding to earthquakes, civil defence emergencies. The military evacuation of hundreds of tourists and locals from Kaikoura has been completed. 450 tourists were taken on board the HMNZS Canterbury and they've sailed to Little, Littleton on board the Navy ship. Uh, and then, of course, as you said, Op Protect, which has been the, the COVID response, which has been an enormous um, challenge for the Defence Force, uh, you know, taking up to you know, more than 1,100 uh, Defence Force personnel. Uh, and, of course, when they're doing some of those tasks, there are other things they can't do, such as training and preparing and being ready to deploy. So uh, there's some trade-offs when you have such a long list of, of demands on, on a defence force. What shape are our military assets in broadly, particularly when it comes to things like aircraft and ships, which, as, as you say, do, do tend to have very long lifespans, but when they need to be replaced, they really need to be replaced? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And I think if you look at probably two of the big platforms that were really ageing was the P-3 Orions and the C-130 Hercules. And it's, uh, you know, it's a great testament to the quality of the uh, engineers and mechanics uh, in the Air Force that kept them, um, kept them flying and kept them going for so long. So they were, I mean, they came into service in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And sure, they've had upgrades along the way, but those are old airframes and, and old, old, old platforms. This government, in its first term as part of the coalition with New Zealand First, actually committed to significant, you know, once-in-a-generational spend, if, if you like, to replace both those uh, aircraft. $1 billion has been allocated to fund the replacement of the ageing Hercules fleet. Where I think some of the challenges are coming would be uh, more in the maritime sphere, where you've got the frigates, for example, which they were purchased in 1989. They've just had a, a very significant uh, systems upgrade in their surveillance, their communications, their weapon systems, their defence uh, systems that uh, the government says will see them carry on into life into the 2030s. But those are big, expensive capabilities, big, expensive platforms that also take a very long time to come into service once you decide to go ahead and, and, and purchase them. So, so, you know, one of the questions about this is uh, there's been some significant investment from, from the government in the last uh, three or four years. One of the questions is what's the plan going forward for replacement of some of the other platforms that are coming up towards the end of their life. And that includes maritime helicopters, the strategic lift, the two um, Boeing 757s, uh, and then further out, these questions around the, the, the frigates. Harking back to, to something that you mentioned earlier on, I think you, your colleague, uh, Dr Peter Greener, has said in the past that New Zealand likes to wring as much life out of its equipment as possible, which it kind of feels like an attitude that maybe appeals to New Zealand's sensibilities in a way. 
But, I mean, we have this instance now where COVID costs has forced us to defer plans for a new Southern Ocean patrol ship that would have cost $600 million. Is there a point where things do actually become quite acute, like you do need to keep up to stay relevant? I mean, I think your your point about wringing the life out of platforms is 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 one that obviously you know you think about that in the context of the P threes and the and the C one thirties that were you know fifty plus years old as as platforms and 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 they've been replaced now, and I think that in some ways that flows out of a, a sense that I don't know if it, it's so much of a number eight wire mentality, but I think it probably grows out of a sense that for for many New Zealanders, they felt that we live in a part of the world that's fairly secure, and mm-hmm. and you know that phrase a benign strategic environment yeah. has been one that's been bandied around, but I think that's beginning to change. Uh, in fact, we've heard ministers. Andrew Little gave a speech last November where he said, you know, New Zealand no longer lives in a, you know, if, if we ever did, we certainly don't now live in a, in, a, in, a, in a benign strategic environment. So that challenge, that that's certainly, I think that attitude is shifting. I mean, I think the question around some of these um, purchase decisions is a really interesting one. The, the Southern Ocean Patrol vessel was signalled uh, in the defence capability plan that was announced in 2019. Mm. Uh, and one of the reasons it was um, identified as being important was to be able to allow New Zealand to be able to carry on uh, a series of activities at once, to be able to patrol our exclusive economic zone in the Southern Oceans during the really busy uh, summer fishing season, while also being able to carry out tasks uh, in the Pacific, for example, in support which is because the fishing season in the Southern Ocean also happens to be cyclone season uh, in the Pacific. And so, again, there's this challenge of, of concurrency. Even if you've got modern platforms, if you've only got so many, there's only so many places they can be at once. You know, if you're going to ask your Defence Force to do more, I think you either have to give them more resources uh, or the inevitable result is they're going to have to do less of, of some things. But now we come to the inherent tension of pretty much all defence spending, which is the opportunity cost. New Zealand has problems, problems that tax dollars can help to solve. We've already borrowed lots of money to help deal with the COVID fallout and recovery, and we already spend billions on defence. So how can we possibly justify spending even more? Shouldn't we focus on cleaning up our own house? I think it's a valid question to ask, you know, why would you spend money on defence when you can spend money on housing or hospitals or, or child poverty or some or something like that? I mean, I think what I would say is uh, the long-term interests of the country are based on uh, our integration into, a, into a, uh, an international trading order where we can, we can safely and securely trade with the rest of the world, where we can exchange information and so on. We have uh, obligations and responsibilities to the realm of New Zealand uh, in the Pacific, but also to Pacific neighbours uh, in terms of wanting to be able to respond to the sorts of disasters, challenges uh, that we know are going to be increasingly a problem with climate change. Uh, and we also, I think, have to accept that uh, there are malign actors out there, state and non-state, that would wish to um, to challenge our interests and do us harm. So I think that there are really good reasons why you want to spend those those dollars. I think the challenge in some ways for New Zealand governments is to think about how they can think about spending that money in a sustainable way so that when these big decisions come up about a new a replacing a platform or replacing a piece of equipment, that it's actually done in an orderly and planned way so that we don't end up with this sudden 
sort of traffic jam of big decisions that all happen at once, and then we get these real concerns and crises and, and, and anxieties around defence spending. Mm-hmm. So that's the, you know I think there is a there, we have a, a defence force that does a lot of things that uh, we we take for granted, and a lot of things uh, that we want. Uh, our defence force to do, short even of responding to armed conflict. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, sometimes that's something that governments really need to make the case for mm. to uh, to people. You know, I have seen writing on this topic that a, a new world order is sort of cropping up now. You know, the post-World War II order is, is breaking up and the successes are still not necessarily clear. And after a long period, you know, a really long period of broad global stability, things are are, are changing. I mean, do you agree with that characterization? Is that a little bit too melodramatic? Or do you think, like, I don't know, I don't want to ask you if we're going to see more conflicts in the mid to long term future. You know, you're not a, you don't have a crystal ball. But is that an interesting observation or something to keep an eye on from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, Emil, I think that um, sometimes I, I like to think that the last sort of 35 years or so has really been kind of golden weather mm. for New Zealand in, in our region. If you think about it, it's been a region that's been largely at peace, uh, at least uh, in terms of interstate conflict. It's been a region that's got more prosperous. It's been the most dynamic part of the global economy. Mm. Uh, it's a region that's been integrating. It's wanted to buy what we had to sell. And it's by and large been a region where the status quo under US leadership was broadly acceptable. But clearly in the last 10 years or so, uh, that's begun to change. And we've seen obviously a more a, a, a wealthier, more powerful China that's deciding to do what all great rising powers do, transferring some of that wealth into, into military power. It's it's it doesn't like having the United States as the leading military power in, in what it considers to be its region, and so is becoming more assertive in, in terms of its relations with um, with its neighbors. I think we've also just got big questions about. Um, the kind of, of of regional order that's going to exist, the kind, the the ability of of international institutions to deal with these kind of pressures, of regional institutions to deal with pressing regional security issues. Part of the the last five years, we had there were big questions about the United States' commitment to its alliances and it, and its role in. Uh, in East Asia, there's big questions about the structure of the economic order in the region, as as both the United States and China seem to be kind of pulling pulling apart in some ways into into a fra- more fragmented economic order. So I think we are li- living through a, a really tumultuous time in, in global politics that's really challenging for a small country, and I think that that um, should cause us to reflect about what we can do for ourselves. Um, but also how we work with partners to try and safeguard our interests. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Professor David Capey. Matewa.